This is part two of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. So I think if, if there's anything that we need to be carrying as a message as we're starting to talk to a wider audience, especially like when I'm working with emerging design professionals, people who are majoring in architecture and engineering and the sciences and so forth, they're in college, they're looking at this, and some of them are beginning to realize how destructive some of the engineering and design practices are that we have been following. And they're starting to try to figure out how do they personally react to that. Then this message that, you know, we can be a deeply restorative and regenerative element in the landscape is something that they need to hear. And, um, that they need to just know it's possible because it opens up whole new landscapes of possibility for them as to how they can approach, you know, this, this thing they've wanted to do in terms of architecture, engineering or whatever, you know, that they can approach it without this idea that by necessity doing that will destroy the planet that they're living on. I want to move on in the chapter. Do you have any other notes for the first two pages, so up through page 258. Um, you know, I, I do really like the idea that, you know, we're, he, he, he's laying out this idea of, you know, building fertility, um, starts to get into the idea of, you know, this, one of the things that, um, is, is again, never done in, in, um, in chemical ag, which is using what we would quote, quote, non-productive plants to build fertility. You know, this idea that in, if you're growing corn in chem ag, then what you grow is corn and you try to poison every other plant that might dare to grow in your, you know, where, you, where you're going. But here we're talking about encouraging, especially in the beginning, encouraging what most people would think of as non-productive plants, you know, uh, plants that will produce mulch, uh, nurse trees, um, and that what we're doing is we are working with the natural ecosystem really to uh, take and accelerate succession to get the land to the point where the soil and the land itself is ready to grow what we want for it to grow with us. And I think that is, again, some of the profoundly powerful and important ideas that are sort of prefaced in this in his introduction to this chapter that, you know, um, nitrogen fixing trees and shrubs, we, we might in the beginning be growing a majority of things that are mulch crops and cover crops and, and nitrogen fixers and so forth with our quote productives coming in as a second string behind that once we've started to actually build that fertility. Uh, there's so many people who their idea of gardening is we've got to put all the productives in the ground on day one before we've done <laughs> anything to build fertility. And the usual result is they get very discouraged because the soil, or if they, if they don't have soil yet, the dirt is not ready for it. 
and they're trying to do something that is anti-ecological. They're trying to make something grow in which the foundations for its growth are not there. So that, to me, is something to highlight and to really pay attention to out of that first little introductory bit is focus on building fertility and building the soil first, and then you can move into production. The sentence I want to share from page 259 is uh, when you – it's a section called Choosing the Right Pieces. It says, providing the right pieces – and getting important cycles going is most of the work in creating an ecological garden. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I like what you're saying, how so many people think on day one, I'm going to, and then they put 10 years of work on day one. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, and of course, then what actually happens, you know, is, is it's going to be completely different. Um, I, it does seem to me like for a lot of people, um, things don't start to come together until the seventh year. Um, but, but of course, there are examples of places where they've like said, here's what we grew using permaculture techniques in the first 90 days. And it's like, wow, they mm-hmm. did get a lot done. Of course, how long you been living there? Oh, you've been living there 15 years? And this is the first year you're doing permaculture stuff. Okay. Um, that's, yeah. Because I kind of feel like you get to a new property, a lot of times it's like there's a there's a bunch of settling in, and then there's a bunch of other things that have to happen, and then you know the the cows get out because your fence wasn't at 100 percent yet because you were going to get to that the first day, but you didn't. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> the cows showed up on day three, and uh, you were thinking like, oh, I didn't fix the fence on day one, and so. Um, Anyway, adventure, comedy. (laughs) One of the things I've noticed is that people whose idea of gardening is that they're going to fight with nature and force it to grow what they want it to grow. Mm -hmm. I'll talk to them and they'll say, well, I've I've had 10 years of experience in gardening and and it's it's a constant battle and I can never make anything grow. And then someone's like, well, tell me what you're doing. (laughs) And we'll we'll go through and they'll, they'll tell me everything. And it's like, Okay, you're, you're trying to fight with the ecosystem instead of work with it. Yeah. And so you don't really have 10 <laughs> years of gardening experience. You have one year of gardening experience 10 times because you're <laughs> trying exactly the same thing every year and you're trying to force the ground to do something that it's not ready to do. Yes. Versus biological says, hey, we're going to partner with and we're going to learn from mm-hmm. this ecosystem. And we're going to help it move through succession. We're going to feed the soil and we're going to build it over time. And, uh, that, if you do that, every year is different because you're, you're building with, you're building something and it may not be until say the third, fourth year, according to the ecosystem you're in. Some ecosystems will go faster than others according to the biome you're in. That's when we're getting to what uh, Toby in this chapter is calling the popping of the garden, when it just decides it's going to take off and really go. And so if you understand that that's where you're going, then you don't, you don't feel so bad in the first year if you're not getting this, you know, the end product that you're hoping to get. You know that this is a building phase, that you are doing the work and laying the foundations to get to your garden really popping in the third, fourth year, something of that nature. And so 
you know, you, that's when you don't get stuck in the rut of having this one year of experience 10 times, but instead you are solely working with the ecosystem. Very important. I think an excellent metric in this is that are you still irrigating in the third year? Yes. I think that in the first year, you're, you're going to have to irrigate. And, I mean, there's there's people that have done it. Like, I've seen Seth Holzer do systems where he never irrigates, and uh, he's, he's been very successful at it. Uh, but, of course, I, I want, and I do, I want to talk about that for, like, a day. But at the, at the and there's, and it can be done. And we've According done it. where you are. We've, According to your, where your starting line is. Sure. There, there are circumstances in which the starting line is such that that is absolutely possible. There's other yep. places where the starting line is such that, no, you're probably not going to make that happen. But we have, we have stuff here like, like you've seen that little rhubarb plant and apple tree. Cause I know yes. I've done the walkabout and you were there. Yes. And, and it's like, there's that little rhubarb plant and apple tree right next to each other, surrounded by a bunch of alfalfa and they're thriving. I mean, it's a great example of, um, uh, plants, uh, helping other plants. And it's like that has never been irrigated. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it's, it's like it can be done. But at the same time, uh, when you're really building soil, irrigation is going to help. And of course, irrigating with water that doesn't have any chlorine, it would be really yes. good. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, the, the, the thing is, is that if somebody's got a patch of land and they're like, I've been gardening here for 10 years and they're still irrigating every year, I have to kind of wonder, like, you know, and I'm not saying that what they're doing is wrong or bad or whatever, but I, I do wish to say, how about us, how about developing a system so that three years from now, you no longer have to irrigate? And it's like, yeah. and, and I think they say, well, that's not possible, but it's kind of like, and yet people are doing it. And yeah, the exact number of years to get to that point is going to vary somewhat based upon your conditions. Some people can do it faster. Some may need a little longer to get it fully off irrigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, you may have, you know, okay, occasionally we may have a really long period unusually long drought period, in which case we need a little extra help to get the plants over the hump. But what I would say is if you're doing your job right and you're building the soil, you are doing earthworks properly and so forth, then what you should see is that your need for irrigation should steadily decline over time. Yes. 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 And it is plausible to get it down to zero. Um, and in a lot of situations, I wouldn't want to say that that would be everywhere in the whole world, but in the vast right. majority of situations, you can eventually get there, yes. Maybe you can get it down to where, like, oh, in a, in a horrible drought, you're, you're going to water just once or maybe twice. Yeah. You know? The other thing I would say is if you're establishing new perennials, um, then according to the type, you may need a little water for certain kinds if you're transplanting. Now, if you're doing what you should be doing, which is, getting them to come up from seed in place, then their resilience is much higher. But if you are stuck in a situation where you have to transplant perennials, um, even after the first couple of years, you might need a little extra help for that as it gets established, gets its roots underneath it. That's That one's, that one's really tricky because it is. if it's got a tap root and you water it, it will, it will drop its tap root. 
mm-hmm. it'll become absolutely dependent on being irrigated. So you right. gotta you gotta be super careful with that. Yeah, that's why I said if it's coming up from seed where it will have a tap root and the tap root will maintain, then yeah. you're in a more ideal sort of circumstance. You don't want a lot of you don't want to baby it um, because you'll become dependent on it. On the other hand, if you've got something you've transplanted and you know that it, the tap root is almost certainly destroyed then it may need that extra little bit of help um, in establishment, in which case, you know, I can give it that and then um, it will, it will, you know, get over that hump. Usually a lot of those transplanted trees, uh, about two years, and they've got enough root system underneath them that they're, if they're going to make it, they're going to be in pretty good shape. So when I make a leap onto page 260, and this is where he's starting to pull all the pieces together into something really beautiful. And and it's like, first he starts off with diversity of plants, and then he goes into diversity of diversity. Mm-hmm. And so and it's so beautiful. But um, I want to start off by reading this. Uh, all plants harvest carbon and minerals, and if left to compost in place will add them to the soil. Some plants are better at this than others, though, particularly in the young landscape or in gardens that are harvested regularly. Fertility-building plants are critical to create and maintain healthy soil because they channel nutrients to impoverished earth and replenish what is taken by the harvest basket. Fertility builders can make up as much as half of a young garden. And, you know, I I just want to triple underscore this bit about replenish what is taken by the harvest basket. Because this is the thing where, to, where like, uh, people are like, I'm going to grow alfalfa and sell, sell bales of alfalfa. And it's like you're you're growing all this organic matter, and then you're hauling it away. <laughs> you're... You have a you now have a plan to convert soil into dirt by yes. by hauling it all by hauling all of your organic matter away. Yes. And so it's like, yeah, when you harvest and take it away and take it out of your system, then you are uh depleting the organic matter in your system. But of course what he's going to talk about is is that you're gonna have like all of these systems and all of these plants and eating them is just a small part of it all. Um, and so the, and then all these other plants, it's like, okay, you're going to take that and eat it. And uh, by the way, you're going to take it and eat it and then flush the organic matter down the toilet to a sewage treatment plant far from this garden. Like no problem. We'll cover for you. We can, we can deal with that to some degree. Not a problem. Now, I, I do think you can't deal with it. Uh, we can get into the whole willow feeder thing and other podcasts for another day. But, um, but yeah, the, I think so many people don't understand that when they take the stuff out of the garden to eat, then they are reducing the overall. They're, they're taking something away from Mother Nature and not replacing it. But that's, that's okay. Right. It can be mitigated. But so the way I look at it is, you know, again, we're talking about the garden here. And I, I to me, the, I, I guess my definition of garden is a little broader because I think about that as the perennials and the, the annuals and so forth. Uh, the whole 
you know, production ecosystem mm-hmm. as one large system. And what I would say is if you're talking about like a production garden or a kitchen garden that's growing a lot of annuals, um, that is a bit extractive in the soil. And so what we need to do is we need to be able to somewhere else in the system be able to generate excess fertility we can share to cover. So if we have a food forest, if we have animal systems that are producing excess um, fertility, that gives us the capability of producing enough excess fertility on site to be able to do this faster cycling annual production, extracting a lot of nutrients out of the soil and do it over time and not mine the carbon out of the soil, not mine the nutrients out of the soil. And also remembering that if you're doing your job right, then the microbial activity in the soil is helping to mine out new nutrients out of the inorganic base in the soil. It is also helping to replenish and create new organic matter. So, you know, there's a dance here in understanding your nutrient cycle and the fact that annual production is a heavy extractive force on a body of soil and that when you're, you know, creating this polyculture ecosystem, that what you're doing is creating the other elements in the system that will help replace what is being extracted by the annuals. I feel like uh, for a lot of fruiting plants, they put the very best that they have into the fruit. Yes. And so then you're eating the, the fruit, which is often – and so if you've got a deficiency of some mineral – and it puts a lot of that into the fruit, and then you eat that, and then it goes off-site, never to return, then you are um, exhausting your soil in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And so, all right, this is, so to talk about the part where it's diversity in plants before it gets into the diversity of diversity, then there's um, uh, nitrogen fixers, Nutrient accumulators, mulch plants, insectary plants, wildlife attractors, feed and forage species, and finally, plants for people. Now, Mm -hmm. to start off with nitrogen fixers, I've marked up a little bit here. This is perhaps the most important class of plants to have in a young garden. In poor soils, Having 25% nitrogen-fixing plants to begin with is not too many. And so uh, I usually think like 50%, mm-hmm. especially on a new culture, brand-new culture, which has all that wood on the inside, high carbon, and you're going to have uh, nitrogen immobilization happening. Um, to do 50% nitrogen fixers, with a brand new hookah culture is acceptable. In fact, doing more than 50% would be okay with a brand new hookah culture. You know, what's interesting is that in each major stage of succession, if you have a nitrogen fixer, it's often one of the pioneers of that successional um, layer. So they are, these, these species tend to be really good at pioneering and helping push the um, ecological ecological succession forward for you. So this is true whether you're talking about an annual production garden or whether you're talking about building a food forest, where 
if you look at pioneer species, there's oftentimes really great pioneer uh, nitrogen-fixing tree and shrub species that help pioneer out of mid-succession towards a more forested landscape. And oftentimes, it's just some of your fastest-growing trees that can act as nurse trees and also help to build the soil microbial community for that next stage of succession. So what we're really saying here is that not they, it isn't just the nitrogen fixing that's happening with these nitrogen fixers. It's oftentimes those nitrogen fixers are great pioneers and they're structuring, um, the, they're structuring the, the environment and the soil to move you into that stage of succession that you want to grow in. And um, they oftentimes are fast growers and therefore can help you do that quickly. So we're taking, we're feeding the soil as much as possible. We're making certain we're giving it enough water and then we're giving it plants that can jump in and do this job very, very effectively and quickly. Putting that all together, we can accelerate this process of getting to that popping point. Um, and that's why those nitrogen fixers are oftentimes an incredible, incredibly important element of pushing forward uh, into the, the regime of growth that you want. Absolutely, and um, uh, and and it is true too that a lot of soils, when you're starting out, are are really nitrogen deficient, and so it and it does it takes it takes time. Uh, to, to, to get it to the point where it's like everything else is, is taking off because the soil has gotten past it. And, and there's a lot to be said too for a lot of systems starting off with nitrogen mobilization. And yeah. it takes, it takes time to get past that. All right. So then there's, uh, nutrient accumulators, which are going to be a, a variety of things. And of course, the most famous one is going to be comfrey. Um, and then, then, uh, mulch plants, which I think comfrey is another, is a great mulch plant itself. But under mulch plants, I've noted initially most mulch will come from the herb layer, but as the garden matures, trees and shrubs will take over much of this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, comfrey start right out and it's like, Oh, here we got tons and tons of comfrey providing tons and tons of mulch. As, as well as being a nutrient accumulator. I mean, it, I don't know about where you're at, but here at my place, the comfrey quickly grows, like almost overnight. Oh, yeah. It grows like five, six feet tall, and then it's so giant, it just flops over, being the mulch for all these other plants. And then um, we just come and we, we chop it. It seems like every week we chop it and grab uh, grab that to be a mulch for something else. It's just such a massive, massive producer. Yeah. Um, and then we've got insectary plants, wildlife attractors, feed and forage species, and then finally the plants for people. And then I've noted in here under plants for people, plants for food, income, crafts, fiber, medicine, building supplies, nursery stock, seed saving, and just plain beauty. Mm -hmm. So now this was the last item on this amazing, massive list. And, And out of all of that stuff, food is just a little part of it. 
Uh, so I don't know when we when we talk about gardening and also as a, gardening as opposed to farming. It's like I think that this really helps to drive the point home. And what's the difference between a permaculture garden and um, let's say uh, all of the flavors of farming? So. Yeah, I still push back against using the word farming to refer to uh, chemical agricultural outdoor factory production, but uh, that's my my personal, uh, I guess, uh, my personal uh, thing against using the word farming to refer to what they're doing uh, with that. So on to the next section, we talk about the diversity of diversity. So this was just the plants, but then... Um, as other forms of diversity, besides plants, there's harvesting water, catching nutrients, and then there's a mention of gray water in there. Uh, and harvesting water could be about earthworks. You know, harvesting water can come in many, many flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in my presentation about replacing irrigation with permaculture, I think I've got 17 different techniques that I cover in the presentation. But that's just the beginning of, of a much richer list. Oh, yeah. Uh, gardening in layers. So this is going to um, uh, address a three-dimensional garden, which is going to be kind of what the, a food forest is all about. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 different, the different kinds of canopies and the different kinds of herbaceous layers and, and even, even the uh, layers that happen under the ground. Uh, using sectors, adding animals, uh, building interconnections. I'm going to read a little bit here. In the rich interconnectedness of an ecosystem, small failures are shrugged off. The loss of a few plants or an outbreak of disease isn't the setback it would be in an orderly row crop garden. So I, I kind of liken this to the whole thing about the uh, Colorado potato beetle thing that I talk about in a permaculture system versus an organic field. And so then if you've got Colorado potato beetle coming in, they will wipe out your crop. If you've got 40 acres of potatoes, it'll be wiped out. But if you have one plant in your permaculture system, in your permaculture garden, with Colorado potato beetles, that one plant could be wiped out, but all the rest of your potato plants could be fine. Yeah, see, now you're going to get me going on what I call organic plant manufacture. Because because a lot of people have this idea that somehow or another the industrial ag system, you know, you go to Walmart, you find these things that are labeled organic. And, um, you know, people ask me about that. I say, well, really, what that tells you that organic label tells you more than anything else is what they didn't put on the plant. It doesn't tell you that they use biological cultivation. It tells you that they use a little bit less noxious and poisonous chemicals in order to grow it if it was done on an industrial scale. So, you know, um, that's why I, I always go back to the difference between biological and chemical cultivation. What's happening is a lot of cases like that potato that you're talking about is being chemically cultivated using a set of chemicals that have been deemed to be organic, which means they're using a lot less biocides, a lot less poisons, which is really good. Let's, let's give them 
you know, points for that. But oftentimes, almost always, when it's done on an industrial scale, again, they're using uh, non-biological processes. And these plants, therefore, grow up with a lot less phytochemical defenses. And they're almost always also grown in huge monocultures. As a result, um, you wind up with something that isn't necessarily nutrient-dense and doesn't have the capability of defending itself the same way that it should if it is grown in an appropriate um, biological cultivation setting. So, I mean, I, I, I want to kind of just quickly touch into something there. I mean, I, I personally, I still call them poisons. They're just OMRI-approved mm-hmm. poisons. Yes. And so, <clears throat> but if you've got 40 acres and you've been told uh you need to grow potatoes, and this this is all potatoes. You need to pull potatoes out of here. And um, and here you've got a big tractor, and here's a huge tank of diesel, and here's all the you know the tractor toys that go with it. And so ready, set, go, grow potatoes. Versus if you've got a half an acre, and your mission is to grow potatoes, and and you're a gardener, and you're and you've studied permaculture. In fact, mm-hmm. if you're presented, if you're a gardener and you've studied permaculture and you've presented the 40 acres, your approach will be dramatically different on 40 acres than on half an acre. Yes. Your approach on half an acre will be gardening. Your approach on 40 acres will be what Toby is going to call agriculture. And and then it's going to be like, okay, how do I, you know, and then when you start seeing the Colorado potato beetles, then your thought is, is that because it's all flat and homogenous, then everything's going to get wiped out and I will get fired. I will lose my job. But if you've got a garden and you were gardening it, I mean, the first thing is, is that not a big deal. If all else fails, I could go through and just smash all the, all the Colorado potato beetles. I could come out here twice a day and smash. And so it's like um, you're not tempted by the chemical army. You're not tempted to go and bring in the chemical army. Because on the 40 acres, right. tempted. But on the oh, yeah. half acre, you're not. So if you've got your 40 acres and on 40 acres you've got 12 different permies, each with a zone one, and you say to everybody, okay, our primary function is to grow potatoes, but we're doing it all the permaculture way. I think what you're going to have is everybody's going to have a garden that's going to be pretty potato heavy, but they're probably going to have a lot of um, diversity in the landscape. They're probably going to have done, they're going to use that tractor to do earthworks as opposed to like, how can one person go and harvest all this stuff? And you're probably going to do it in rows. And if you're thinking diversity, you're going to be like, well, maybe I'll plant some clover in there with the potatoes, you know, and then it'll die out maybe before I start harvesting the potatoes. Um, the other thing is, is that as a vegan I would think that I would much rather want to eat potatoes that were hand-pulled from a garden than something where the ground was ripped.
to pull all the potatoes out. Yeah, I think there's an important dimension to this, which is let's let's talk about those 40 acres of potatoes in a organic factory uh, setting versus the Permian setting. In the Permian setting, when the potato beetle shows up, we know that because we're building an ecosystem that the predators to keep that in balance will show up at some point. We're probably going to, we can use some intermediate strategies to minimize losses to some small degree while we're waiting for that to happen. But we know that if we continue to work forward, that eventually the trophic layers will continue to fill in. We will get the predators for that pest showing up. We provided habitat for them. We're welcoming them in. And eventually that problem will self-regulate. On the 40-acre factory setting, the exact opposite is true. We have no ecosystem that we're trying to build. We have no habitat for the predators. We basically have created a buffet for the pest with no place to call in an ecosystem that will host the predators and will bring it back to balance. That problem is going to simply get worse over time, not better, unless we intervene. So you basically created a impoverished system without the beneficial interconnections in which uh, there is no, no help is coming unless because you have shifted all of the burden for help on yourself by intervening in the in an ecosystem and taking all its diversity away and putting all of that responsibility on you as the person doing the cultivation. So you're not getting help from an ecosystem, whereas in a permi setting, we absolutely would, and it will get better. That help will get better over time. So moving on with the list of diversities of diversities, the next item on the list is designing with zones. So I just Mm -hmm. talked about having a, a bunch of different zone ones, but then, you know, the way that you design your zone one is going to be very different from how you design your zone three. Um, offering niches for the gardener's allies. Mm-hmm. So uh, brush pile. And I believe it was you that introduced me to the concept of here's a little speck of zone five in your garden. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. really like I, I- I draw that when I'm teaching it. A lot, a lot of times the conceptual diagram has, you know, zone one through zone five sort of in concentric circles. And even when I introduce that as the first concept, I have a little wedge of zone five that goes all the way in and touches all the way to zone one. Um, very important. Uh, I build, build an ecosystem. Love that. I just love that so much. All right. So uh, enhancing survival and growth. With nurse plants. I, I've got a little bit here I want to read. Nurse scaffold and chaperone plants, table 6-4. So, of course, buy the book. <laughs> yep. Will, in, will help ensure that young or tender species will become established. They will also boost their protege's growth rate far beyond what a young plant could achieve alone. I just kind of feel like this is a big part of like uh, when you start talking about the the different canopies and things like that, uh, or full canopy gardening kind of stuff. Then uh, this is this is part of that. 
trying to grow a new plant in, at, that's part of a canopy or within a canopy that's part of a, a guild, if you will, which, by the way, when we talk about guilds, I think that the number one book everybody turns to to try to understand guilds and do their first guild is Gaia's Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, it is the guild book. Uh, the next uh, in the list is community building via guilds. <laughs> yes. Let me say something about uh, Canopy and, and so forth. So I, I, I've noticed some confusion about uh, Canopy and so forth. A lot of the early writings on food forests were done by people who were um, in tropical and subtropical areas mm-hmm. where the sun is very high overhead the whole year. And you get a large amount of sun infiltration down through a canopy, even if it's fairly well closed. So the thing to remember is the farther you go from the equator, the closer you get to the poles, uh, the more the sun is coming in at angle most of the year. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you can't tolerate quite the degree of canopy closure. So, you know, the farther you're getting uh, poleward, either in the north or south hemisphere, the more you have to moderate uh, the amount of canopy cover so that the sun can still work its way down to those lower levels, lower layers. Um, if you try taking somebody's example that they did, let's say, you know, in the high tropics, and you try the same planting density, say there where you are in Montana, um, well, by the time the canopy closed over top, you probably wouldn't be happy with the results in the understory. Oh, uh, you, yeah, you need a much less dense canopy to let the sunlight in. But the same principles apply. It's merely that you have to moderate the amount of canopy cover and open it up some more to allow enough sunlight to come in. Look at natural ecosystems in your area where that's happening to tell you what your canopy cover has to look like. When I'm thinking of full canopy gardening, I'm thinking of how the herbaceous layer can have its own canopy. I mean, basically the mission Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily to have a canopy with canopy. The word canopy is usually used with trees. Yes. But I oftentimes think of it as the, uh, like, you know, up to something like about the two foot level. Like suddenly it's, it's keeping all of the soil covered, really. Herbaceous ground cover. Yes. Yeah. Don't have like, paths in your garden unless those paths are also covered. And so yes. I cover my paths with stone, um, mostly because I have a lot of rock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have oodles of rock. But um, uh, I, I kind of feel like um, anywhere where there's any soil that's exposed, that's where the water will wick out. And so you either have to mulch it in some way, but if you're going to, if it's your path, you don't want to mulch it with an organic matter because then it's going to, you know, all your growies want to grow there. And it's like, no, they no, do. don't grow here. This is my path. I want to concentrate my organic mulches in where the growies are. Right. But, but there you could have like potatoes could be a, 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 could provide part of the canopy, you know, and then, and then you can have a whole bunch of different kinds of herbaceous plants all making a canopy that covers the soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would tend to. I would for me since I'm. Uh, I use the word canopy to refer to uh, 
tree cover, since mm. all of the silviculturists I work with use that term. I use the word a herbaceous ground cover. And I agree. One of the critical things is, is just not to have exposed uh, soil. Because if you have exposed soil, you won't have exposed soil for long. It will become exposed dirt. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, what will happen is you'll get oxidation of the organic matter out of the top. You'll get compaction happening. You'll get erosion happening, wind erosion, water erosion, all kinds of stuff happens. And, of course, sun heating of the soil and a bunch of other things. So it's just one of the, the foundational things that you come to in learning in, is don't have exposed soil. Um, you know, even in the wintertime, um, some way or another, according to your biome, figure out what the appropriate way is to have your soil covered. Um, so that you don't get that problem. I want to, so now we're to the section that's called the garden gets popping. And yeah. um, I feel it's very important that we do not read into the podcast more than 10%. And so mm-hmm. I, I think I've kind of kept it below eight just to be safe. Um but but in this particular piece, um, I've got a lot of highlighted stuff that that I'm going to um, read in. And and again, of course, buy the book, <laughs> read, read the read the whole book yourself. But um, uh, although every moment in the ecological garden is gratifying, there is one stage in a site's evolution that is particularly exciting. That's when. After an initial period of sluggish plant growth and imperceptible soil improvement, the garden suddenly explodes into life and seeds with greenery, fruit, blossoms, and wildlife. In the first chapter, I introduced Roxanne Swentzel's garden in New Mexico. Remember that when she and her two young children moved in, The place was gravel desert. At first, everything we planted died, Roxanne had said. It was just too harsh. The plants would cook in the summer and freeze or dry out in the winter. We'd bring in big old rocks or logs for protection and plant little trees behind them, she recalled. That helped a little, but we still had to plant a lot of things over and over. Okay, then there's then it goes into the section where permaculture designer Joel Glansberg says, in the beginning we'd find a sheltered spot like along a swale. We'd mulch it and put in pioneer species, usually native and exotic nitrogen fixers like New Mexico locust, Russian olive, and Siberian pea shrub. In the shade of these, they planted fruit and nut trees that would eventually soar past the nitrogen-fixing nurse plants to form the canopy. The strategies worked, and about the fifth year, life began to take hold and gain momentum. The soil was rich enough, the shade amply dense, the leaf litter so abundant, the roots sufficiently deep for the pieces to coalesce into a whole. And then she says, 
our biggest problems now are too much shade and too much water. And I can't even throw a peach into the bushes because next year there'll be a peach tree growing there. Oh, the problems of the people who succeed with permaculture. <laughs> right. You know, and it's exactly what we're talking about a little earlier, which was this idea that you started with what they're describing, which is dirt and some pretty heavily compacted and gravelly dirt. And then you start to work on little core areas to create little nuclei of fertility from which you can, upon which you can build. You don't try to do the whole place all at once. It's too oh much. yeah. Oh yeah. Do islands. I call them islands. Yes. yes I think that's he a good calls, word for it. In his book, he calls them chunks. chunks. I call them islands. Yes. So, you know, this is one of those places where, um, I will at this point, Early on, work with techniques like thermophilic compost and aerated compost teas and so forth to help jumpstart the process. If I want to get it going faster and I'm willing to put in the work, then I can use those tools there. Once we get things moving, then you would see that I would cut down on the use of those tools dramatically. Um, what it's, I'm using those for in the early days is to allow to get the organic matter and the soil life in there as quickly as possible. Because really where that tipping point comes, when you get to the point of having about three-ish percent organic matter in the soil, you kind of hit a tipping point with the soil life. And uh, it is the soil life working in a symbiotic relationship with the plants that causes the pop. Also remember that by the time you get to three percent soil uh, organic matter, your ability for your soil to hold water has gone way up. Yeah. We've gone from pretty much with a sandy clay, sandy soil, almost nothing, up to, say, 75,000 gallons per acre at saturation. And um, at least, I think it's probably a little more than that. That's what the USDA will admit to. Um, and so we get to that point where we've hit that 3% and we've gotten the soil life running, and because the seeds are growing up out of it, all those beneficial microorganisms are now actually on all the surfaces of the leaves and the stems of the plants as well. And that's when the pop really wants to come. And now you're into that positive feedback loop, and you're off to the races. So now, forgive me while I kick you in the shins for just a moment. And <laughs> I, knew, I knew you would be upset with my compost. <laughs> yeah. <Go right> ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you got your thermophilic compost, yes, and and you've got your compost tea, mm-hmm. and it's just you on the forty acres, and you're you're told that your job is to grow potatoes. All right, so. So I would immediately say that's the wrong that's the wrong answer. Yeah, yeah, that's kind okay. of where I'm going. No, no, I get so, it. I, so I, the thing is, when you start <laughs> working on forty, if I had to start working on forty acres of that, right, which would be like mm-hmm. uh, forty acres of gravel sand, right? Sure. Okay, we're going to build our islands because we need reservoirs of soil biology that can be extended out to try to establish. 40 acres of soil biology <laughs> is an industrial process. It can be done. Now, if I had if I had to do it and had an industrial level tools, could I do it? Sure. 
Um, you're talking about industrial scale composting and industrial scale application of aerated compost teas. Can be done, has been done, seen it. Sure. Oh, yes. Yes. But you're now in an industrial process, not a homesteading process. Right. If you're in a homesteading process and you're trying to start this, then you start with a couple small islands. And I would be taking, again, a zone one space and creating a reservoir of fertility and uh, really powerful microbiology. And I personally use microscope to examine this and see how I'm doing. This is where I can concentrate on a small area with a small amount of thermophilic compost and reasonable amounts of area compost tea to make certain I'm getting beneficial microorganisms on the surface areas of the plant. Mm-hmm. Very good for preventing diseases in the early goings. And as I get that reservoir of really good biology going, now I have a nucleus from which I can continue to build outward that biology has a foothold and can assist me as I grow outward. And that way I never have to try to produce for a homestead thermophilic compost for <laughs> 40 acres, um, not something I would do in a homesteading setting. Oh, yeah. I would start on that small island and then use that as leverage to build the rest. When, when you're looking at the 40 acres – and your the the biggest tool in your toolbox. I mean, granted, compost is magical. It is wonderful, magical stuff. And I even have to 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 change that a little bit. Homemade compost is magical stuff. Well, they say real real compost because the not, stuff that you can buy is there. Not, there is no there is no stuff I have found that you can buy. I have not checked Vermont, Vermont composting. They do some interesting stuff. Haven't checked their stuff. I need to order some and look at it and see what yeah. it says under the microscope. Yes. So you have to understand, I'm talking about compost that we have made on site and that is designed to use the beneficial microorganisms that are endemic in that ecosystem from that we actually seed out from the best ecology we can find. I want to go find the best ecosystem of the stage of succession that I want and gather some soil from that. And I use it in the beginning to inoculate my first compost piles <laughs> in that area to get the good biology in there. And then I'm checking to make certain it never went anaerobic and that I have all the right microorganisms in it. Then I apply that to make aerated compost teas out of that and apply them. That's where you get the magic. So now the important thing here is that you and I, as engineers, uh-huh. and, and I know for a fact that you speak the language of the engineers, which most engineers do not, and that would be that you would never say an absolute like always or never. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about commercial compost, and we I think we both are in agreement. Never. There's a possibility for exception. Kind of doubt it though. Kind of, kind of feel like there is no exception. I, I, I would, would love say, to see an exception and then we can say like, yeah. okay, it's possible that you Never can get it. a semi truck load of this acceptable mm-hmm. material to drive from Canada <laughs> over I here. Seen it. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it's just not then. Then we start getting into the whole space of like, okay, 
We're going to make our own compost. We're looking at this field. We've got 40 acres just got here. And it's like, okay, what have I got to make compost out of? Nothing. <laughs> God, I got if sand. I, had, <laughs> I got if, nothing. If, and, if, and it's kind of like, I had 40 like acres and I had to try to get it going. Yeah. So we would be looking at fast succession. We'd be trying to put in, you know, uh, cover <laughs> crops and so forth. And I might go off and try to get the materials to build one small, like, one to two cubic meter compost pile with really good indigenous microorganisms and then create area compost tea and spray it across the 40 acres. That's actually doable. And that will help jumpstart the biology. It will get you there faster. Okay. No, no, no. I'm, I'm with you. I, but the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. That you're not going to generate your own compost for 40 acres without heavy machinery. Oh, Absolutely. And it's like in that movie, The Biggest Little Farm, like the first thing they did is they built this building that looks like a $3 million building, and its right. only function is to make compost tea. And yep. it's like, oh, crap. So, but no, no, no wait, give me a moment. Give me just a second here because I want to, I've been trying to get to this thing of like, as a, as a gardener and you're thinking like a compost is magic and I want to use compost tea and only the homemade stuff is good. And you're kind of thinking about how much organic matter you generate in the day with your kitchen scraps or whatever else you're doing. And it's like, you're looking at 40 acres and I think one acre, even if you're looking at one acre and you're thinking of compost and compost tea, it's like, Oh, suddenly there's this, feeling of standing on the edge of the abyss as you're like, I can't make that much. I I can't. I just, and I have to get the potatoes in the ground here in the next two weeks. I just can't do it. And it's like this whole feeling of horror as you're thinking of like, you're trying to apply your gardening magic techniques that work so well, that are beautiful. And, and not only that, but a so I want to admit it, making compost and compost tea and spraying it is a soul-building experience. As you're out there with your stupid-ass dumb fuck sprayer, it's kind of like you're Gaia, and we're talking about Gaia's garden. <laughs> so, but it is, it's like you spray this stuff, and it's amazing how the plants say, I love you. It, oh, yeah. It's such a soul-building, wonderful experience. But the amount of work that goes into it. And then on top of that, I've seen so many people that are so proud of their compost, but the material that went into it did not come from organic sources. Oh, oh, tell me, dear Alan, how do you feel about making homemade compost where the ingredients did not? come from organic sources. Um, I do a whole section in the PDC where we talk about that because of two reasons. One, of course, is I think your term for it is toxic gick. Uh, yeah, the I was other one, dumb fuckery. <laughs> the other one, of course, is that now so many things have persistent uh, broadleaf herbicides that uh, will actually oh. go right through the composting process. Oh, and yeah. so you'll you'll apply the compost onto your soil, and then the compost will kill all your plants, except, of course, for the grasses, um, because uh, a lot of the ones where you get this, it's they've applied uh, these broadleaf um, 
uh, herbicides like Grazon and Grazon Next and so forth to the the straw or the hay or whatever. And you're getting uh, that, you're getting it, uh, boy, I, this whole section I, I don't have time to get into right now. But here's what I would say. Um, you know, should you learn, if, if, in, in, in my mind, should you learn to do thermophilic compost and aerated compost tea? If you're serious about growing a lot of food, and doing it over time, I would say, sure, it's a, it's a, it's an important skill. Um, I would say two different ways of looking at it. One is if I'm doing it on like a kitchen garden scale and so forth, that I can do that on a small scale. And once I get my garden up and going and fully productive, the amount of that I'm doing goes down drastically. Uh, I can move more to sheet comp, sheet composting over time and um, only do aerated compost teas when I start to see a problem emerging because I should already have really great biology everywhere. Remember, my idea behind aerated compost tea is to jumpstart and to inoculate the landscape. Once you get good at that, you can scale it up, and it's actually reasonable to scale up. You know, that 40 acres I could cover with an aerated compost tea brewer if I wanted to buy a commercial one for about $3,000. This podcast is continued in part three. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.